0: welcome to rebel spirit radio exploring the frontiers of spirituality consciousness the esoteric and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth i'm your host nick mather and in this episode i'm joined by lyanda lynn haupt author of rooted life at the crossroads of science nature and spirit among other topics lyanda discusses nature mysticism the concept of rootedness authenticity in action the value of darkness, and the virtue of hope. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel if that is where you view this. Be sure to hit that like button and notification bell. Your support is truly appreciated. Leanda Lynn Haupt is an award-winning author, naturalist, eco-philosopher and speaker whose writing is at the forefront of the movement to connect people with nature and wildness in their everyday lives. She is author of several books, including Mozart Starling, winner of the Washington State Book Award, Crow Planet, Essential Wisdom from the Urban Wilderness, which was winner of the 2010 Sigurd F. Olson Nature Writing Award, and her latest book, published in May of 2021, is Rooted, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. Her writing has also appeared in a variety of publications, including Orion, Discover, Utney, the LA Times, Times Literary Supplement, Image, Huffington Post, Wild Earth, and Conservation Biology Journal. In addition to her writing, Lyanda has created and directed educational programs for Seattle Audubon, worked in raptor rehabilitation in Vermont, and has been a seabird researcher for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the remote tropical Pacific. Wyanda, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio.
1: Thank you. I am so happy to be here.
0: Yes, I'm very happy to speak with you, and I'm so grateful for your time. Um, and I have to tell you, I absolutely adored uh, Rooted, uh, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. As soon as I finished it, I wanted to read your other works. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I regret that I didn't have the time to do so before speaking with you, but that may be a good thing in order to keep the conversation rather focused. (laughs) Um, But they are definitely on my to read list.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Of
0: course. I've gone back and forth as to where to actually begin this conversation. And I think that I've settled on nature mysticism. Because that's something that you mention right away in the book, and uh, you kind of give some of your background. uh, That one of the things that seems to have led you on this path is receiving a book of uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux, I believe is how you pronounce that. Uh, And you also mention other, uh, I guess, what are considered nature mystics. You know, Julian of Norwich, uh, Saint Francis of Assisi. And I noticed in his review of your book, Bill Plotkin called you a nature mystic. And I was wondering if you would agree with that.
1: I so appreciated uh, Bill Plotkin's mentioning that because it is how I think of myself. And I will say one thing about reading my other book's One of the things about this new book for me, Nick Rooted, that was a departure was sort of really coming out in a way with full authenticity about that aspect of my life, the spiritual dimension of being someone who's also very much grounded in the science of ecology. Mm -hmm. And for me, when you look at ecological science, and you look at mysticism, which for me, I'm not talking about mysticism in any tradition. And so I have an expansive definition that might be different from you or some of your listeners, which is a felt awareness, sort of an indwelling sensibility that recognizes and honors our absolute interconnection with all of life and beyond earthly life. So but by that, I mean, we all know the truth that we really are made of stardust. All, all of the um, right. particles of our body have been through seven supernovas. I, I thought that was a beautiful poetic thing. That was too good to be true. But I talked to someone whose job description is stardust expert, and she, <laughs> isn't that, so she's a she's a nationally renowned, you know, physicist who who told me that that is indeed true. Okay, so recognizing the depth of that interconnection, which is actually also what the science of ecology is all about, and so in a sense, it's sort of a personal apprehension and lived awareness of a scientific truth and so for me ecology and mysticism mutually reinforce one another Mm -hmm. and and that is sort of the depth of or the the center and foundation of my worldview that grounds all of my work
0: okay wonderful yeah I have for a very long time identified as a nature mystic even before Uh I could actually I think, even define it. Uh, But I agree with you entirely on that approach. And I think that's probably why I resonated so well with your book. And I want to ask you about the title and this idea of rootedness Uh uh, as well, because I guess the question is, you talk, at one point, you mentioned rooted mysticism. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if this is the name you're giving to it instead of nature mysticism a sort of rooted mysticism
1: yeah i okay i'll i'll and i'll answer that first but remind me that i sort of want to backtrack on the title after that okay, okay? all right yeah um, so rooted is a word that even without my knowing it because it wasn't the original title of the book it wasn't the title until the very end and yet when I did a search for it in my manuscript, I saw that the word rooted appeared over and over again. And I think of that very, um, the image is very strong for me when I'm walking on the earth because you know, I have a practice, I talk about this in the book, a practice of, of walking barefoot every day as time and or as a temperature and common sense allows depending on where we are geographically and, and whether or not you're able to walk barefoot. There are all these ways of really feeling the literal connection of our bodies with the body of the earth. And mm-hmm. so I just, I just feel that, that when we, ima- when we imagine roots coming out of our feet and into the earth, it gives power to that truth. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, we, we don't have literal roots, but we almost do
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, in the sense of being literally interconnected with all of life. And so that's what rootedness is, we have a strong felt sense of place, whether it's a place that we live or a place that we are wandering or exploring um, or just being inhabitants of the earth and community. Rooted, the word root actually comes from the word radix, which is also forms the root radical. Mm -hmm. And radical means, you know, something that we put our full heart into, it's not necessarily something at the fringes, it's the center. It means the center about which all things turn, like the double helix, that's sort of a radix around the genetic double helix. So the rootedness is that center around which things turn and you know, in which we find out, I'll just quote a, a, the spiritual phrase that within which we live and move and have our being you know, the center, that's the root. So it's tree roots, but it's also the the full centeredness of life. And not to just prattle on too long here, but I wanna tell you that the original title of this book until the very last minute was Frog Church, Uh, yeah and And so frog church makes an appearance there it's the first I made it into the invocation of of the book Uh, invocation I prefer that word to introduction and uh because as you note I was raised Catholic my mom did in fact put the biography of teresa Alicia in my Easter basket when I was in fourth grade and I was so taken in I was never a traditional Catholic (laughs) person But I love the mystical tradition and the contemplative intellectual tradition that resides there. And much of it is for many of the saints who are are wild people. You don't get to be a saint by being normal. You get to be a saint by living on the (laughs) fringes of society in caves and living in trees and communing with wolves and birds. And Therese of Lisieux was this she's portrayed sometimes as this treacly little pampered, you know, 18th, 19th century French girl, which in many ways she was, but her spirituality is deeply radical. She mm-hmm. senses a, a deep interconnection with the world. She is in love with nature. She lives her own way. She has a sense of spiritual freedom that is very, very similar to what we find in the Zen tradition of which she had no knowledge. So. I was influenced by her, by Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, her biography led me into the path of studying the uh, Western mystical tradition, though I also lived in Japan and studied the Eastern traditions as well. But yeah, she led me to Hildegard of Bingen, Francis, uh, other saints who found their the depth of their own spirituality in their connection to the earth.
0: Mm. Yeah, wonderful. It seems to me that this is something that is necessary and it does my heart really good to see voices like yours coming to the forefront at this time of ecological crisis. Mm -hmm. And I always see this as inherently to switch language a little bit, a religious issue in the sense, you know, talking about etymology, I always take the etymology of religion, which is to rebind or reconnect. Mm -hmm. I'm like, we have to reconnect with the earth. And uh, so that's why I think it's so important to bring in the spiritual aspect, because I don't know that we're going to, I don't want to say save ourselves or or the planet, but you know, without doing so, it seems like it's just, fundamentally necessary
1: right uh, I, I love that etymology and, and i like how it decouples that word rebinding from any particular tradition because right. as you know so many traditions are fraught right now mm-hmm. um one of the things that i kept in mind in fact i was a little bit hesitant to use the word spirit on the cover because i didn't want people to to say oh i'm not religious so this isn't right. for me and so spirit in this book is defined very expansively to mean those parts of our human intelligence, these beautiful parts that bring us to the fullness of our intelligence, our imagination, our creativity, our ability to apprehend interconnection with the natural world, to, to break down The to realize that our bodies are semi-permeable and that we have this great interaction beyond the flimsy husks of our individual skins, all of those things that are part of our intelligence, but are not quantifiable or statistically significant by the traditional measures of science. Mm -hmm. And yet, those aspects of our intelligence do intertwine with some of the beautiful things that we are learning through science and that more objective language of science.
0: Yeah. And I love something that you wrote and I don't know if I have the quote in front of me, but it was something along the lines of that science has its own poetry. Yeah. And one of the things that when you were speaking that came to my mind is something that my doctoral advisor. So I'm going to give a shout out to Dr. Elizabeth Allison, who uh, created the Religion Ecology and Spirituality Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. In a class I took with her, she asked the question: "Is ecology the last of the old sciences or the first of the new?"
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know. And so, how would you answer that question?
1: Well, ecology wasn't named as a science until you know. Rel- what what year would it have been in the?
0: Um... I think it was in the 1900s, wasn't it? Yeah, it was no. in the
1: 19, but the early, like the 40s or something. I mean, that's oh, yeah, relatively yeah, yeah, yeah. recent in terms of maybe even right. the 50s. And even Rachel Carson, when she was writing Silent Spring, came out in the early 1960s. She didn't really identify with the science of ecology because it wasn't that established as a science. So it's relatively new. I... I don't know if that's a question for me. It, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a question that, that rings. Okay. I, mean, I do love that it is a science based. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's an it's an evolution, an inevitable evolution of mm-hmm. other many different kinds of sciences coming together to recognize the places that they overlap. It's almost like it's almost like the liberal arts of science. Yeah. You
0: know? yeah
1: depth of interconnection. And as you know, the root is Oikos household, oh, right. which is so beautiful. And that goes way back to the Greek who, who did have that, who did have a sense of, who did have a, a kind of a, hmm, it wasn't an earth-based spirituality, but did have a sense of home place mm-hmm. where that word Oikos came from. So it's sort of, I love the evolution that it's come through to ground that word ecology it's a beautiful household really expansively as our place on earth and beyond is so beautiful so sorry if i skirted your question a little bit um okay okay. it
0: it just it was something that came to mind when you were speaking and you know and i don't know that i could personally answer the question either but it, it does seem to me in a sense that Ecology is drawing not just from the physical sciences, but, you know, like you said, you know, some of the humanities and literature and myth. And um, it seems to me that that is a different way of knowing.
1: Although, you know, And Nick, I think it's funny if you, if, if you're in school and you go with that kind of notion about ecology, because we think of ourselves as being interested in ecology. And so we read Ursula Le Guin and we read Wendell Berry and we read, you know, Dina Metzger and we go out and identify mushrooms and we go to an ecology class and we think that's what it's going to be about. And it's not, it's math.
0: You know, right, right, right,
1: right. It's, it's energetics it's physics of energy um movement and, and and dimensions so so I think we should honor that although it it plays well ecology plays well with aspects of the liberal arts and if you take an ecology class it still is a it it is a science and and that's what you're going to find in your ecology class unless you have you know, have a a kind of a broad spectrum instructor sometimes i mean mean, that's really common right now where they're Mm co-teaching ecology with humanities my daughter just graduated from vassar and she majored in i'll just take this chance to talk about my daughter um she majored in environmental studies and cello performance Mm -hmm. but in the environmental studies you need to have a and I think this is great. You need to have a, a focus, and she chose music. A lot of people have chosen literature in the past. Some have chosen, you know, physics or chemistry or architecture or whatever. And she was the first one to choose music. And so they were like, okay. We've got some. We'll get that uh, music advisor for you to work with your environmental studies advisor. And I think that is happening more and more, um, which is wonderful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I agree. I was, uh, I recently posted a video um, in regards to uh, David Orr's uh, article or essay, Uh, what is education for? Mm -hmm. And uh, I did it because there's always this meme that goes around that is taken directly from that essay, but it's always falsely attributed to the Dalai Lama. (laughs) And so I, I, wanted to kind of say, you know, no, that's not true, Um, but also give his essay the justice I think it deserved, and while rereading that essay, and I use this when I teach class, uh, teach uh, my intro to philosophy courses, that's one of the first things I have students read is what is education for, and, you know, he says that he lists all these myths of education. Then he gives, you know, these principles and his first principle is that all education should be environmental. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the areas that I disagreed with him because I said, no, it needs to be ecological. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Because he also talks about how the disciplines are, we always separate them and isolate them. But yet, he also says, you know, we can't do that anymore. We have to look at the interconnections between all of these systems of thought. And so that's why I kind of said that it should be ecological, because, like what you said at the very beginning, I see ecology as the science of interconnection. Right. Yeah.
1: I really agree with you on that. And in fact, many people who work in ecology, especially from a philosophical point of view, are trying to sort of move away from that word environment at all, environmental justice, environmental, um, studies and replace it with ecology because environment so often refers to, you know, the room you're in and the built environment and it has a coldness to it and a distance to it that doesn't invite that semi permeability that we find, um, between ourselves and the rest of the world in ecology and so I agree with you it's a science of connection it's an invites. it's a science that invites us to explore other forms of connection um it's a science that invites us to recognize a way of knowing that predates science
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> as well All
1: right. All right so so yeah I I in fact I had a whole section in Rooted that I took, I took out. I had in the, there's a chapter on language about the way we speak and use language, nice. which is very important. Uh, but it started out as sort of a critique of words that I don't really like. No. <laughs> <laughs> environment was one of them, but I, it got kind of ranty and I, I changed that whole chapter. But no, I think that rethinking the word environment is important and replacing it with with ecology as you suggest is lovely.
0: I also wanted to ask, uh, because you have a background in environmental ethics and talking in terms of ecology and science and shifting paradigms here, it seems to me that you're presenting something of a different kind of environmental ethic you wrote in the book that often environmental ethics use the language to go back to language here of utility and economic value. Right. And you also say, you know, we need to avoid technology-based metaphors, right? And I, I, I agree with that so much And it seems to me that so much of our ethics are based on rationality Mm -hmm. and my background is actually virtue ethics and environmental virtue ethics, but even that, you know, I like it because there's a practice and this is kind of where I want to lead us a bit. You know, it's something that you do rather than a rule that you follow, but yet there's still this emphasis on practical wisdom. So what you are providing, I think is an ethic. I don't know what name I would call it. And that's one of the questions I asked, you know, if it is, you know, what would you call your ethical approach? Would you, would you call it like a rooted ethic?
1: I would. Yeah. In fact, when you're saying that rootedness is sort of my guidepost now. And um, I think you're, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest where, as you know, ancient forests have been logged for the last, you know, more than a century. Where I live, I'm I'm in West Seattle right now, and I'm not far from the Olympic Peninsula and the Cascade Mountains, where there is less than 2% of old growth forests left. Mm -hmm. And for the last, since the 70s, when the Protect Ancient Forest movement really got going, one of the arguments was that utility of the forests, not so much the value that inheres in them or the wisdom that inherits in these forests or the beings that they, that they um, protect and the, the world that they create. It was the idea that we are going to need healthy forests for humans to breathe. We're gonna need healthy forests to find medicines as yet unknown. And even if the activists weren't motivated by this utility, We use the language of this utility because we thought that within the economic system, it's the only thing that would make a difference and be understood. And it did not work. It has never worked. And what I really want to argue very strongly for is to reframe the language and attitude with which we live in respect to the natural world, not using the language of commodification, not using the language of economy but using the more expansive language of sacredness Mm. that a tree has value because the tree is a living ancient being Mm. apart from any thing, even aesthetic value or sense of calm or medicine that it it offers to us as humans. Mm -hmm. And so I think reframing our language is is very very important for sh- shifting uh, just just turning the circle and and going forward where we recognize a world in which a river has value because it's a river, yeah. <laughs> not because it's full of fish that we can eat. Right. And right. Um, even moving beyond that word "it" for a river, mm. um, and i I'm, I'm hoping that as the As we rethink the gender binary and come in to new new pronouns, we can find a subjective pronoun rather than an objective pronoun to refer to things like trees and rivers that we wouldn't think of as he or she. Although I have no problem with just using those pronouns because they're more subjective, but hopefully we can come up with something better, but that's not objectifying like it. Right, very, right. It is very othering,
0: right?
1: Yeah, yeah, And I think that's something our sciences can do as well. I mean, our sciences are, are really moving forward in helping us understand the depth of, of interconnectivity mm-hmm. and the ways of knowing that mm-hmm. other than human beings have, including trees. I mean, we're looking at Suzanne Simard's work. She's not the only one. There are many others doing this work with trees and roots and mycorrhizae, but in scientific journals, If you look at studies that are done about animals, research papers on animals, even if it's a primate, say a macaque, if the sex of the animal is referred to in the beginning, so it's a female macaque, right? We're talking about after that, the macaque is never referred to as she, but as Mm. it. So we recognize a it's female or male. Maybe that has some impact on the science. But after that, we will objectify this animal, calling it it, it, it. And I think that is one very specific way that science could move forward right now.
0: One of the things that I am wondering about is, uh, because I agree with absolutely everything that you said. And with this idea of interconnection, I was also thinking that this is an ethic of relationship, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a relationship to the wild and uh, the wild within us and that we are part of. And that's another reason why I enjoyed your work so much because you're describing your experiences uh, in the wild. And I, and I do want to talk about uh, just a couple of those. I don't want to give the whole book away because um, <laughs> I do want to encourage people to uh, read this book. But one of the things that I was wondering, and I, and I think about this, a lot is I think it's really important for people to have these sorts of experiences, Mm -hmm. to be able to connect with the wild and to go out and walk in a forest or even among some trees in a park. Mm -hmm. But it seems like I I don't know how to get them there. You know, and and so I was wondering if you had any ideas how to open people up to this, uh, especially people like in cities where it's just not all that accessible to them.
1: Right. Well, yeah, you really zeroed in on the core of this book. You know, so many people, you know, we're in in a world in which we are facing multidimensional crises, right? And one of them is climate crisis, and in addition to pandemic and war. And one of the questions that you probably get in your classes or speaking, and one that I get very often is, what do I do? What do, there's so much going on. We're paralyzed by overwhelm sometimes. What do we do? And that's a difficult question to answer because there is no one answer, Mm -hmm. because I believe I don't believe that we all have one single mythic purpose in life that we have to find or, you know, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) And and I think but I do think we have inherent gifts, we have a, a sense of unique authenticity, beautiful form, singular forms of intelligence, unique intelligences that we have to offer. And so what I wanted to bring out in the book is, and I believe that we, we come to know our authenticity, which is so drowned out by the noise of commodification of the overculture of the rings on our telephone, of um, our, our cell phones, the you you know, all the stuff. Right. And I think that when we listen, use some earth-based practices for connection and listening that can help us find our own rooted authenticity, which will lead us to our own answer Mm. to that question. What do I do? The question that is meaningful for us. You don't want me out there organizing an anti-fracking demonstration because I (laughs) am a terrible organizer and no one would come and it would be bad. There are people that are really good at that. I can write Mm. some pretty sentences that would support it, Um, (laughs) but we all have our own ways of doing that. So what I wanted to offer in Rooted were some Uh, way markers or fortifications, some invitations into different practices that have meant something to me. And I do share a lot of kind of funny stories and experiences, and then also the um, traditions and myths and science that tie into those stories. But I'm hoping that they will serve as invitations for people to try out some of the things that have worked for me, but even beyond that to go, okay, she did that. But what would my version of that be, you know? Mm-hmm. And as far as how do we do it, I know how do we break through the noise. I think that, you know, social media is a double-edged sword, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it it hijacks our attention, and yet we have the ability to mindfully, when we show up to social media, we have the the opportunity to mindfully offer something that is a beauty and love and perhaps an invitation to just kind of pause in the piece of, a moment of recognition of our, of the piece of the wild that surrounds us. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think social media is the answer. I'm just saying when we use it, that's that's a way to sort of kind of enter in Mm -hmm. and hopefully press beyond but the most grassroots way that each of us has to invite that kind of interconnectedness and practice in others is by example. Mm-hmm. I think it's just by the way we live, by the way we walk in the world, by, by what we say when we have an opportunity to speak by being open to sharing. One of the things that I do is sometimes I'll go down, I, so I live close to the Salish Sea and I, I'm an observer of birds, a longtime student of bird life and I'll take my good binoculars and spotting scope, which is a privilege to have. And, and I'll set them up there and people will walk by and they'll say, oh, you're looking at the eagles? Cause everyone thinks if you're bird watching, you're looking at eagles. I, I, I say, actually, no, I'm looking at a harlequin duck which is here for the winter and is about to go and nest in the, and throw their young into the raging rivers of the Olympic mountains, which is crazy. Uh, but it's a beautiful duck. Uh, this duck looks like a, an intricate carving. And so I will offer people a look through the scope, which brings it you know to 20 times magnification. And they'll say, yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> 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 I've seen ducks and I say, no, 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 you haven't you know, just for me, you know, it'd make me happy if you'd look. So people look in the scope and they see this magical, detailed, exquisite being that they've never seen. Cause you need optics to see it. Um, the people will say, oh my God, is that a rare bird? And nope. That bird is here every winter. And that, oh my God, part is to me just so beautiful. And I think that we all have our own ways of being able to offer people a glimpse into the things that we see Mm -hmm. and that other people might overlook, but then can walk into the world going, wow. And maybe say to someone else, did you know there's a duck out there? Or maybe get whatever their uh, hand lens or some binoculars, whatever their tool would be for uh, extending their vision. So I think example might be the one of the best tools that we have. And then like we were saying, using our gifts. If yours is teaching and offering this beautiful podcast, mine is writing, others is organizing. We we all have those gifts. We put our put our ears up to the ancient tree or to the soil and listen
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, for a response to our own question is what what would you have me do? You know, yeah. what do I do?
0: Yeah. And go yeah, forward with that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I love that. And I had a quote from your book. Uh, actually, two of them. One, uh, I think these are from different sections, but one, I'll just read one sentence. Uh, it is said that Coyote appears crazy and is dancing to those who cannot hear his mystical music. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Uh, but then the other, and I, if you don't mind, I uh, because I think this is exactly what you were just saying. Uh, the ways and tenets of rootedness prepare us to share our unique passions, whatever they are, on behalf of a beloved suffering world. Mm. Our work is to allow this passion to affect our existence, to let the inner ecology of our lives come to touch the outer ecology of the earth. This is the creative art of earth activism. The human task now is to bring it. Mm. Uh, And I just thought, yes, that is absolutely right. It's something that you know, having thought about this for a long time now, the conclusion I've reached is I think very similar is that the best thing that we can do is be our authentic selves to be our authentic selves and to be the best version of ourselves that we can be.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. I was just having that conversation with a friend yesterday. I I, I do want to back up and say that the, the, Coyote appears crazy to those who can't hear the music is, and I I want to acknowledge that 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 is not that's not my own quote. I've heard it. I tried to source the I tried to source it and I I see something vague like you know, Indigenous Americans, and I don't like to just, you know, lump that. So that's a quote that's out there. I think it's beautiful or an idea that's out there. Right. I was talking with a friend and yesterday about, about this, he was getting asked this question, what do I do in classes he's been teaching? And he had this idea of bringing your best self. And I think that's a huge part of it. We've been talking about authenticity, but I would want to warn us against the complacency of resting in, I'm being true to myself. I'm living the life that I know is, is my best self I believe that this moment on earth with the depth of the, we're, we're talking about ecology, so I mentioned specifically the climate crisis, but that impingance on, on, of course, the other crises facing us. I believe this moment asks something of us. It asks something of us that we take that authenticity, uh, that we, it, it, it matters tremendously that we spend the time in the practices that a form of radical self-care so we can show up with our best selves. But I believe that we need to move forward in action as well, right. whatever that means for us. As again, I think that's different for each of us, but I, I just want to invite us to make uh, all to make certain that we're not falling into the complacency of, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm recycling. And Oh, you know, right. because I'm a writer, I don't have to sign the petition or show up at the, you know, I, I think that I think something is asked of us, mm-hmm. and I think those grounding practices prepare us for action. Mm. And this is no time for you, you read from my book, thank you for doing that. The, the task now is to bring it, so there's all the preparation and the bringing. <laughs> we have to, there, there's the Benedictine uh charism, the Benedictine mon- monastic charism is aura at Labora, Hmm. contemplation and work, contemplation and action, and that the two inform one another. And I think that's sort of the conversation that we're having here.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. One of the things that I have asked several guests that I've had on the podcast, uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, but I think for you, you actually address this in your book. So the, the question I typically ask is, are you hopeful? (laughs) uh in regards to our ecological crises that we're facing and so i want to ask you that but with the knowledge that you also discuss hope uh so uh, i thought that maybe you could say a few more words other than yeah or no Uh, but to discuss hope in general yeah
1: okay yeah people people ask me, whether I'm hopeful, and sometimes they'll follow it up with, oh, but of course you are because, you know, you speak with this language that is so loving and so full of, you know, um, kind of joy and relationship with the natural world. And that is true. But as far as do I, do I think that we are going to be able to do the work as it culture exists on the earth today to turn around climate crisis? To prevent, in my little region of the world, the extinction of the southern resident, resident killer whales (orcas), but they're called killer southern resident killer whales. I, I, d- I do not have hope that these things are going to happen. I, do, I, I am not full of that kind of hope. I am not optimistic about our ecological outcome. Um, that said, I am filled with hope in the way that I live, in the way that I want to invite others to live with this definition that I actually found in an old monastic dictionary in a Benedictine monastery, that hope is the virtue of acting with joy as you move toward the future. It's a virtue of acting with joy. And I thought virtue sounds sort of, prim and moralistic, you're a virtue ethicist, but it's actually finding, you know, this, this deep love in our, in the way that we live and act. And so what I, when I think of hope, I decouple the idea of hope from my expectation of a particular outcome. So I hope <laughs> this is a different, I equivocate on the word. I hope that I'm wrong. I hope we don't get to 350 parts per million. I hope that uh, the, we can come together and clean the Salish sea well enough and and save the salmon so that the Southern residents can continue in beauty. I do hope that, but whether or not those things happen, I I want to act. And I, I want to say, I'm, I am no, I'm no saint. And I've, I don't want to sound like I'm doing everything right at all. I fail at all the stuff I preach about a million times every single day, really. So it absolute imperfection is an expectation for me. Many people are doing much better. We all will fail at some point. So I don't, I don't want to sound holier than thou about this at all, but my, my continuing um evolution in my life is to act from the hope that is doing what I know is best for the earth community in as much as I can. because that's what love is because that's what we do if we have a, a, a beloved dying friend, we don't say, oh, well, they're gonna die anyway. So <laughs> I'll just go, you know, watch Spider Man. Um we sit with them, we hold their hands, we 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 do any healing, accomplish any healing effort that we can muster in hopes of, of that possibility. I don't know if that's a good metaphor. I've never used it before, but I think maybe it is. We we hold we we're holding hands with with the earthen community in love and in in that joyful virtue of hope Mm -hmm. and painful, grieving hope. Joanna Macy is, you know, um, Mm -hmm. does a lot of eco grief work and wants to honor in, in activists, the, the deep grieving that we feel that's based in love and that can undermine uh, that can lead to burnout if it's not recognized and honored. And so, I mean, I think that's, something to recognize too, that hope. I use this word love, but I I use it in in a great inclusive way that includes the potential for deep pain. And that absolutely includes and honors the grief that we feel that's based in the love that we feel. And that with all of that, we go forward.
0: Right. Right. Wonderful. Um, it, also, that calls to mind something that you also wrote about. I'm trying to find it here in my notes. Uh, but it was in one of the chapters, uh, you have this chapter on darkness, uh, which I liked. And I think that's where you encounter the moose at night. Yes. I remember right. But you you noted that you know something like 90% of life unfolds in complete darkness. Right. And that's something I don't think people really stop to think about. But what I really wanted to point on is, or uh, comment on, is that you also, and this is a direct quote, this complicated moment on earth is no time to retreat into the simplistic metaphor of bringing the light. Mm -hmm. The hope we must maintain, the imagination we must put to use, and the physical health we require all ask of us a more intricate wisdom. Mm. And I absolutely adored that because the i'm thinking of the darkness not just physical darkness but also like the darkness of the depth of the psyche um that that is so necessary to work with in all of this you know because like you i fail all the time (laughs) um and i'm always trying to improve But I can't walk around and proclaim to be this beaming beacon of light without recognizing the darkness within. Mm -hmm. And I always find a little bit of a danger with people who are like, no, just, just focus on the light, focus on the light. I don't think you can have, you know, light always brings shadow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that metaphor of light being good and dark being evil is so deeply entrenched. We hear it now in the political rhetoric. And I didn't realize how entrenched it was in myself until I decided to write this book without using the metaphor, the metaphor of darkness for difficulty or right. bad or, or, or staying light. And I had to, when I went through my draft, I had to cross that out about 20 times. I was really amazed at how it just rolled off the end of my pencil. Uh, So deeply ingrained, but yeah, you know, I, I love the work of Ursula Le Guin who, and I talk about her in the chapter on darkness who in her earth, sea books. And just in that title, we see the way that she's erasing these dualities and she addresses darkness a lot. And in the hymn of Aya, you know, the, the, I don't know, capital or center of, of Sea. She has this poem, starts, the, the hymn starts out with something, I, I think I have it right. Only in dark the light, only in dying life, bright the hawk's flight against the empty sky. And as you know, I write about dying as well and that the, our entrance into the spiral of life. But I think you're, you're right. And you're ta- you mentioned psychic darkness and i think that we can enhance our understanding of that that shadow work as some mm-hmm. psychologists yeah. call it by dwelling in literal darkness and not being so afraid of that loss of bearings that we you know we can usually find ourselves in space and that creates some confidence in us and then when that is gone we're left with a different kind of knowing and a different kind of apprehension, but it's one that animals, including humans, have known for most of our evolutionary history. This, this uh, constant light is very, very new and it's disorienting to our bodies and our rhythms. So finding ways in the wild or even in our neighborhoods to, or our households to turn off the lights and dwell in darkness can be, it can be very um, educational.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I encourage time in in darkness and and, uh, moving towards ways to embrace darkness in our everyday life with the awareness that it's not necessarily easy or comfortable and and allowing that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it makes me think also of this movement that I would love to see worldwide of darkening cities at night. Mm-hmm. Because I think that we've lost something really important. You know, I'm in uh, LA County, I'm down in mm-hmm. Pasadena, and I love nothing more than looking at the night sky mm-hmm. uh, where there's no light pollution. And here I'm lucky if I can see 15 stars. And I think that being able to go out into the darkness and see the vastness of the universe gives us a sense of awe and beauty, which I see as fundamental to doing this work.
1: I absolutely agree with you, right? Finding ways to do that, finding ways to encourage uh, lights out in our neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. especially right now during migration, when Mm -hmm. birds are so confounded by nighttime light uh, that interrupts their navigational systems. But at other times too, just to to find ways to increase the darkness. There was a time a few years ago when my whole neighborhood lost power for several days after an ice storm and my house got so cold that I went to stay with a friend but I came home to get something and at night and the neighborhood was so dark I had no idea how much the street lights and the porch lights and I'm just in a kind of a normal neighborhood created this this false light i had never seen such depth of darkness around my home and it was a surprise and a wonder, and also a sadness to see, gosh, what we're missing.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I find that students don't know. Uh, There's so much that they don't understand in terms of the, not just the night sky, but the cycles of the seasons. You know, one of my, it was a couple summers ago, it was the summer solstice. Mm-hmm. and i had just said you know oh everyone enjoy the solstice and a student asked well what's that and wow. i said oh well it's you know it's the longest day of the year and the response is oh you mean there's like 25 or 26 hours <laughs> i'm like <Yeah>. no
1: <laughs> well you are doing doing important work nick yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, very briefly, and this is maybe a little bit silly, uh, but I have to comment on this. Uh, The chapter on death, the spiral, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate it. At the very end of it, you have the list for your husband. (laughs) And uh, one of, you know, if you were ever, you know, brain dead, you know, things to do before unplugging you. And I just had to say, I am so grateful that you put in watching all seven seasons of Buffy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because I'm like, oh, I'm going to do that too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I had sort of some ideas about, about what becomes of my body after I die. And I, I, it's really up to my loved ones, but I had some suggestions for my husband and I, I did make him a list including, well, what led to this was in part studying the afterlife of our cells. So when we are considered scientifically dead, medically dead, our cells are take sometimes days to, to finish up their cycle and sometimes even longer. And so I thought, wow, I really want to let my body finish up (laughs) Mm -hmm. before anything else happens. And so I talked to my husband about some of those, some of those things. And one of them was, I said, just don't unplug me. Just let, let, let it all adjust for a little while. Yeah. Go to France, watch Buffy, read Anna Karenina (laughs) (laughs) and then revisit. And one of the, the practices that I've undertaken was making, because I, I will hope to be, be buried in a natural cemetery. And, you know, there, there's there are a lot of green cemeteries now where they keep a, a place where they're, they're not embalming and they're not putting the concrete wall around you. But a natural cemetery takes it a step further where you don't even have a stone, a, a human-made stone. You can place a natural stone from the the, the, the um, ecosystem that's on the land there. And then loved ones, burial places are found in the future by GPS,
0: mm. which
1: the keepers of the cemetery have for you and can lead you to the, to the place. So I think that's very beautiful. And I contacted a couple of them and they mentioned that when you are buried, you can have a total, it has to be totally biodegradable basket or a shroud linen, flax linen or cotton and even the thread that that's sewn with has to be cotton and biodegradable. So on my list for my husband was I want to be buried in a, you know, the, kind of a really pretty flowy organic linen dress. And that's when he he was fine with Buffy and going to Paris <laughs> and calling a death midwife and all. But when I got to the dress, he just said, "What?" You know. And I thought, of course, how is he going to figure that out? So one of my practices has been hand stitching this dress, mm-hmm. and I've been on the hems embroidering again in cotton some quotes that come up for me, like jo- Joy Harjo's, "Remember the Earth, whose skin you are," mm. and. And for me, this is that, you know, the practice of memento mori, the, this many spiritual traditions have the invitation to keep your death ever before you to not to be morbid, but to invite gratitude and conscious living and recognition of the gift of life and the offering that your life can be. And so that has been some, some of my friends are, are. Feel that this is kind of a dubious practice sewing <laughs> my death dress as they call it.
0: <laughs>
1: but and it is and I don't want to be glib about that. I want to say that it's hard for me. It's yeah. I, it's not something that I have come to terms with, but it's a practice that for me is um, an invitation to, to go deep and to recognize that we are part of a, a great essential spiral.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, and you know, this is connected to the darkness, because you had also noted that, you know, in the darkness, you have the fungi and other bacteria that's decomposing, you know, composting, essentially, and you need the darkness and the earth in order to give life, and that's how I think about this, because I have long held, you know, just dig a hole and stick me in it. because I can't think of anything better than to be surrounded by the embrace of the earth after I'm gone Mm -hmm. and then to become part of it.
1: Right.
0: You know? Um, so, so yeah, I agree. 100%. Um, I just,
1: I just say one little thing about that because, because this is new, um, and because families don't always aren't ready for this. I just want to honor that whatever choices anyone has ever made in the past regarding their loved ones or or are making for themselves now, Mm -hmm. this discussion is not a judgment on that at all. It's just sort of the idea that this discussion is happening. Mm -hmm. I think it's beautiful and we can enter that discussion, but just to honor everyone's choices are, people are making the choices that are right for them. and, and, And that's important to recognize.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I understand there's a way you can do this where they plant a tree. And so you your body actually feeds the growth of the tree um, as well. Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah. Imaginations
1: are at work here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh I know that we are getting close to the end of our time together. Just so just a couple of final questions. Uh one is this idea. Uh, This is also part of, I guess, your tenets of rootedness. And I learned this from you. I never knew this. I never understood this, but the idea of kith and kin. Mm. And I wanted to ask you if you could discuss this uh, kith uh, or kithship uh, for a moment, Um, because I think that's important. It's something that I don't think most people know.
1: Sure. Sure in the in the ecological community we're talking a lot about kinship right now Mm -hmm. the depth of interrelatedness between ourselves and all other beings right um but there's this phrase and it goes back to middle english at least of kith and kin and those things have been conflated to mean you know our near relatives and maybe our friends but when i went deeper into kith i found that it's it's they're not the same, which is why they're different words (laughs) in in this phrase. And even in England, they're conflated now. People really don't understand the the meaning of of this word kith. But it has to do with the land. It has to do with uh, one's sort of square mile in which they live. And how by walking that land and living a, a life upon the land, we come to know each being, each stone, each, um, I'm thinking of English, I'm thinking of sheep um, or whales. Uh, I don't really see sheep every day, but you know the salamander or the Swainson's thrush that always sings on the particular salmonberry bush. So there's that particularity of of knowing the land in which you live by heart. Mm. So it's it's a different. So I can think about. So I've been talking about the orca that, and threatened orcas that often swim just down the road from me, Southern resident killer whales. In Scotland, there is also a population of Southern resident killer whales who are v- deeply threatened. And when I think of kith and kin, or I think of kinship, I feel kinship with the whales in Scotland. They are my relations. These beings are in, in, the, in the beautiful experience Expansiveness of, of kinship, we are all related. But the whales that live down the street with me, I know if I have binoculars, I know them by, as individuals, by the scars on their dorsal fins. I know which pod it is by the way that they move, if they're moving side by side or they're spread out. And I felt their breath you know, yeah. on my own skin and didn't wanna shower again for days. You know? <laughs> um, so that is kithship. Mm. And they're related and they're beautifully related. And so I think as we discuss kinship more and more, I think it's a beautiful and essential discussion. I hope that we can bring kith and kithship more into the mix.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of something uh, that Stephen Harding, uh, who wrote uh, Animate Earth and uh, I think his latest book is uh, Gaia Alchemy, uh, that he refers to uh, finding your Gaia place. Mm -hmm. Uh, The place, uh, you know, just a place that you can go on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And um, that's actually what I'm going to be doing uh, right after uh, we end this interview is um, I hike a canyon uh, over by uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh And I refer to it as the Friday office. And I've been doing this for like 10 years. And it's so amazing the interconnection that you start developing by going to the same place over and over and over um and so i'm dying to get there because it rained all day on monday so i want to see how high the creeks are and get my boots wet
1: (laughs) yeah exactly and you you know you probably cross a large stone or boulder and put your hand on it and you know that you know that stone you know oh yeah the, that the river isn't always this high and right whereas anyone else just walking the path for a day in their life would not have that that's kith shit yeah yeah
0: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah there's a tree i always have to stop and put my hands on um mm-hmm. and say hello to the tree and just take a moment to be quiet um and just learn the land and my connection to it great right. so I'm all right
1: you to get two out there but with what we're coming to understand about trees and the awareness that trees have of their 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 world and the space around them, it's absolutely possible that your tree has come to recognize you in return.
0: I hope so. I hope so. I, I've taken offerings to the tree. There's a, it's like a hole, and it looks. I took a picture of it once, and I titled it, it's like I don't know who lives here, but I know someone does. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing tree. And it was interesting to me that someone last summer, they put a little garden gnome in there Uh and that so bothered me um, (laughs) because I'm like, but you don't know if any other little critter has that as a home and you're blocking their entrance. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, it's been removed. The, the, the little gnome is gone.
1: (laughs) I think the practice of, speaking with trees and even reading to trees reading poetry to trees is a beautiful practice not because we assume that trees can speak english i think that's an overreach i don't want to who's to say but i'm pretty much sure that trees don't speak english but what it does for us because we're pretty limited in the ways that we understand he- communication, but because we we commune by speaking or or reading aloud to another being, it invites us. It helps our own psyche seek, sink into that sense of communion, communication, and then to the point that maybe eventually we can drop the words. But when we relate, you know, in this kind of interresponsiveness, it's a good. It's a it's a good way to start out. Yeah
0: yeah for sure for sure yeah we you know it I think if you open yourself up to these things you know it's was it Thoreau said in wildness is the preservation of the world Mm -hmm. Um, and so we all need to be a little bit more wild I think Um, and that's why I appreciated your book because you give us examples of rewilding ourselves and being wild thank you Yeah, of course. Well, it's been an absolute joy uh, speaking with you. Uh, I know that we are pretty much out of time, but let me ask you two final questions. Uh, One is what is coming up next for you? Do you have another book in the works or?
1: I do. I I do. Uh, It's in its early stages and that's a little bit hard for me because I'm used to having the next book ready, you know, by the time this book comes out, but I'm going to argue pandemic torpor and just a lot of things going on that when you commit to a book, it's a, it's a multi-year process. So it needs to be right. And the relationship between mind and idea needs to be right. So I think I'm there and I'm, I'm going to let I'm not going to talk about it a lot yet. I'm just going to let the impetus of the idea sort of sink in before kind of blurting it out. Just let it, let it, uh, what is it? Let it germinate, right? We're we're in the spring, so germination time. But what I'm really excited about is that after a couple of years of not being able to travel, I'm doing some really nice retreats Hmm. and public speaking that's coming up. So I do offer retreats on Earth Connection and I'm looking forward to doing more of those. Okay,
0: wonderful. And so, where can people go to find out more about you, your work, and maybe the retreats?
1: Uh huh. So, my website is just www.liendalinhelped.com. And on there, there's a newsletter tab. And my newsletter is. I haven't written it for months, but I'm going to start again, writing it once a month. And it's my favorite way to communicate because there's no algorithm. It's totally your choice whether you read it. So I hope people will join me there. I think it's just very personal. And although you will find my presence on my name, at least on all of the major social media platforms, the only one I really use is Instagram. And there I'm at Lyanda Haupt. And I would love to see you there.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Well, I will put a link to your website in the show notes and the video description on YouTube, as well as links for uh, your latest book Rooted. Um, So uh, Lyanda, thank you again. I really appreciated this conversation and I'm so very grateful for your time this morning.
1: Oh, I'm grateful as well. Pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much.
0: All All right. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 36 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a moment to spare, consider posting a short but positive review. And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. For the most part, I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including more book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your Rebel Spirit.